on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, this week, Oliver goes inside the huddle with soprano Ying Fong. They talk about singing Mozart and why we should all be more like Susanna. Plus, two-minute drill. Save the drama for your mama because there's lots of it this week. I don't even know where to start uh, other than reminding everybody that if you're watching only on the Dallas Opera Network, you should subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. That way you get everything that we're talking about. You don't miss out. Oliver Camacho, I missed you. Hmm. But look at that hat. Yeah, it's a great one of my <laughs> uh, New Mexico swag items. Um, once you again, you had a grand time out there. I did, and it I is have the so, land of enchantment. It was all. very enchanting. <laughs> yes, and we have had great feedback from Santa Fe Opera. Uh, I think we're going to become the official podcast of Santa Fe Opera. I think they're just going to get. They have their whole media team. They do their own podcast, <laughs> but just you know what? Start fresh. <laughs> bring in those. <laughs> Clever white guys from uh, <laughs> Opera Box Score. And Oliver. <laughs> Matt Cummings, I missed you. It's good to be back. It's been a hot minute. You've been so gone. It's been weird. I, we, I'm I'm just glad that my absence has been noted. Well, we had to steal all your intellectual property for uh, the Knoxville summer of 1915. Um, so. 2021-15. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Weston Williams, uh, I... Uh, yeah, Weston. Hey. Hey, uh, you know, you know, George. For some reason, I'm really craving peppermint. <laughs> peppermint, peppermint, peppermint. Uh, Ashley Hardgrave not on the show this week, although she did contribute to the show with a post from uh, her attendance at the Bears preseason game. You're going to have to go to the website to take a look at that post. It is opera sports related. Operaboxscore.com. Uh, I've been away on vacation for a little bit back in Michigan. I took my father-in-law and my son to go see a Tigers game. Oh. The Tigers playing the... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Well, Oliver, I want to hear your Tiger impression one more time. <laughs> it was just like... <laughs> it's like a little, little tiny tiger. Very know? sick tiger. It was, a, it was a phenomenal game. You can look at the box score if you want. But Tigers were up 10-2 to 2 in the bottom of the fifth and would end up losing 13-10. to 10. It's the Detroit way. That is a high-scoring baseball game with over 24 yeah. hits. Let us talk some... Oh, wait. We have to just tell the audience that we're going to be taking our actual summer vacation now that you're back from vacation the rest of mm. us are taking summer vacation we've been and, we've been dragging through without you and we need a break yeah. george <laughs> yeah. but um while we're gone um the u.s open will have begun and ah. so you won't get my thirsty tennis updates oh uh, no <laughs> how will they know who the hottest tennis players are <laughs> I'll, I'll try to update facebook so all right oliver now can we talk some opera okay Huddle up. 
Let's go inside the huddle. While I was at Santa Fe Opera, I was able to harvest a bunch of interviews. And when we come back from our break, we have a very, very special guest. Hear more about that at the end of this episode. But today we have Ying Fang. And I have to tell you, Ying Fang sang Zerlina in Chicago uh, a couple, I guess, two seasons ago because last season didn't happen. And I didn't know who she was. But I just remember saying, oh, wow, that's a real solid voice. That's a that's a great actress. Um, I'm going to remember that name. And then she appeared in the Metropolitan Opera uh, broadcast of uh, Clemente de Tito. She sang Servilia. Um, and then I saw her on the cast list for um, Marriage of Figaro at Santa Fe Opera. I was like, okay, I'm going to get to hear her again. And she does not disappoint. I mean, she sings other things besides Mozart. If you look at her website, you've seen that she's done uh, the Dew Fairy in Hansel and Gretel. She's done that little Janetta role in Elixir of Love. She's done some Handel. She's done some Rossini. But right now, her bread and butter are the Mozart, Ina, and Etta roles. Uh, she'll be coming back to Chicago to sing Pamina in the Magic Flute in the Barry Kosky production. Finally, mm -hmm. we'll get to see it here. Uh, she did Elia with Peter Sellers. I forget maybe I forget exactly where that happened. Um, but there's a great video of her singing Zafiretti. And you should look for that video because she is an incredible actress. And it's like she's she's like singing for the TV screen. Um, and she will um be doing uh, I forgot what. There's another thing that's happening with her. But anyway, oh you can look for her Netherlands opera uh performance of Susanna on on YouTube as well, where she sings Devani Non Tardar. Uh, it's just an excerpt from the Netherlands. And we're going to listen to both of those performances, the Zephyretti at the beginning of this interview and the Mozart at the end of this interview, if you are listening on the podcast. Sorry, TDO audience. We, don't, <laughs> we can't afford the rights to those things. <laughs> but I just want to say that I begin the interview kind of pressing her on how and why she's such a great actress where she get these skills and like actually i spent the first 10 minutes in the interview trying to get this out of her and she was like you know what i went to school in shanghai then i went to juilliard and this just like my training and it's just my experiences so she is one of those actresses she's just so natural gestures just flow out of her and are timed perfectly with her singing she makes the most beautiful facial expressions while she's singing um, it's great, but she doesn't know that she's doing it. Um, so, oh, well, I asked her. Uh, but we'll, you'll hear me still insisting uh, as we go into this interview. And once again, here's a little bit of her singing Zefiretti.
And when you sang um, Ilya for Peter Sellers, did mm -hmm. he tell you, you have to tilt your head like this, you know, or you have to touch your face right now? Like, because it looks so, no. it is so, this video of you singing Zephyretti, it's it's a film. It's so gorgeous oh, to look at. Yeah. And it, it so really much. it really looks directed by a film director, you know? Well, I actually, um, I think the thing about Peter is he, the way he works, it's very different. It's very soulful, I would say, because he's such a good, a great thinker. And you just feel enlightened, enlightened when you are around him. And when he directs, he doesn't give you things to do, orders you to do things. He would feel with you. That's what I felt when I worked with him. So, for example, when I'm like singing my aria, I'm going through all those emotions. And then you can see that on his face while you're doing it. And that's very special and liberating in one way, you know. But... Um, he would just give you this general idea of, okay, so you are, for example, for Zephyretti, he just said, just sit on the ground and feel the breathe coming. Your <laughs> and it's just, you know, and you just put yourself in that mood and in that situation as character and also yourself. And everything just comes naturally after that, okay. I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, you say it comes naturally, but I think you are drawing on your training even when you don't know it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. I, I'll leave. I'll leave you alone on that. Um, so okay. you're at Santa Fe Opera right now, and you are in the middle of a run of Marriage of Figaro, mm -hmm. and um, I saw it earlier this week. And I just want to talk about Susanna a little bit because it seems to be a calling card role for you. And I know that it's a very long role and you're basically on stage the entire opera. And, you know, we got to act four and you delivered Devieni. And I'm sure you realized, you noticed the audience was just holding their breath. And the ovation you received at the end of the aria was clearly the most enthusiastic and longest ovation of the entire night. And uh, it was well-deserved. And I, as a person who loves Mozart, you know, I love that aria. I know how many different meanings that aria has and depending on mm. who's listening and what exactly. context, it, it's just so complicated, even though it comes off as so simple. And there's two things mm -hmm. there, being simple, but also singing with your most beautiful tone that you can muster after mm. three and a half, after three and a half hours. Um, it's a real coup, you know, and you pulled it off so gracefully and so authentically. And um, I just you. was completely blown away by it. Um, so uh, if you want to talk about Devieni and how you pace yourself to be ready for that moment, or if you want to talk yeah. about pacing yourself with the whole opera, please let us know how you do this because it's so amazing. Yeah. Well, you are right about Susanna. I think it's one of the most demanding and longest roles written for my voice type, I would say. But um, I think it takes experiences for me to really get comfortable with this role because this is my fourth production of Le Noce di Figaro, singing Susanna. 
So I still remember the first time I did this role was when I was in Juilliard. And uh, I remember I lost a lot of weight <laughs> just being in the rehearsal period because she, oh, she's always on stage and she moves all the time. She's always on top of her game, you know? It's really very physical, not only vocally, but like, I mean, it's very taxing, not only vocally, but also physically. So it's, I started to accept the fact that every time I do the role of Susanna, I'm going to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> the Susanna diet. <laughs> the Susanna diet, Susanna workout. Um, but yeah, um, I think it takes, you know, experiences really to know how to pace myself well, because everyone is different. Um, for me, I would say um, I would actually pace myself very carefully in the first two acts, because especially act two, because act two, she's basically on stage the whole time. And then we have the intermission. And act three and four, I think I have some time off stage. So for me, it's really the most important is the first two acts. If I could pace myself well, I know I'll be fine for the rest of the show. Yeah. Um, and then singing Devieni, um, mm. you know, this aria, you can listen to Lucia Pop or Kathleen Battle. There are so many great Mozartians, yeah. you know. I don't know. What are you thinking in that moment when it's just pizzicato strings mm. and you're basically singing a cappella, <laughs> you know, yes. at the end of the night? Like, how are you? I mean, what are you doing? Are you really trying to think, okay, beautiful tone, beautiful tone, beautiful tone, you know, legato. <laughs> What's going on in your head? I think at that, because I know this aria so well now, I, mm. I could basically sing it when I'm asleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that also helps tremendously that I don't have to think too mm. much technical things when I'm doing this aria, because when you, when you free yourself from these thoughts, you are more available in the moment. And I think it's all about in the moment because every night is different and you have different feelings every night, but to employ what is available that night, emotionally, physically, mentally, I think that's the beauty of singing opera in general, I think. You just need to be available for that beautiful music and moment. I think that's me. I didn't really think too much technical things, but I just allowed myself to enjoy the moment. Okay. So you have a, a yeah. very good ear. You're not, you're not, never worried about pitch in that aria? Um, I would say I'm lucky about pitch. Yes. Yeah. Um, but singing Mozart and singing in general, it's just, you have to very, be very sensitive about pitch all the time. Right. Especially in Mozart, because you're literally it's transparent. You have nowhere to hide. So yeah. Well, anyway, I, I I could listen to you sing that aria again and again. It was really exquisite. So congratulations on being Thank able to do so that. <laughs> Thank um, you. So is there anything you want to say? We were talking about the transparency of mm -hmm. Mozart. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else you can say about these women that you play? Like what is the through line or what is the thing that you know is different between each of these characters and what you have to bring yeah. like between Zelina and Pamina and mm -hmm. Ilya? Um, yeah, these are all, 
you know, roles that we categorize as the same Fock, but yeah, they're not the they're not the same girl, you know. They are totally different. I would say Talina and Susanna, they're more in the same group. And mm -hmm. Ilya and Pamina, they're more like heroines. They're mm -hmm. princesses. They so they are in that group. So Talina, I would say Talina is even more earthier than Susanna. She she's just a peasant girl, you know, um, maybe no education at all. She is just, yeah, she, but she takes opportunities when she can, right? When she met Don Giovanni and when he seduced her to this very promising future, she actually went for it a little bit until she realized it's, you know, a lie. But um, I think she's brave, very brave in her own way, like Susanna. Because I think she's Delina is brave to admit that she made a mistake, and she would just and she knows exactly how to get her way around Mazetto, to you know to get him to get back to her again. I think that's Delina and Susanna. She is brave and smart, and I would say she is the way about her bravery is she would stood up for herself in that time period when women were considered literally just a, a part of property and when the class division is so evident she would stood up for herself and say no i don't want this and let's find a way to get this out of the possibilities and let's work and she basically she's the one i mean figaro was clueless about what's happening Right, he didn't know that the count is after her, and Susanna was just this magical woman that tied everything together, everyone together, to this conclusion of the count. Say, I'm so sorry <laughs> to the countess. I think that's amazing. That's I the. I mean, she's just amazing character, and also like the thing about Susanna is she would get frustrated she would get hit she would get you know um go to this down place but she would always bounce right back she would laugh about it and that's so special about her and i think especially during this time you know during this pandemic we all need to have some of susanna in us yeah i, I don't know if you ever if you ever watch um, Downton Abbey. Yeah. Show? Okay. So yeah. I feel like now that many, of, a lot of people in the culture have seen, you know, this portrayal of uh, servitude and the amount of work that, you know, goes on in these households and how you have to always present a smiling face. And like, you know, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of drama happening with the Lord and lady of the house, you know, but you still yeah. have to pretend like everything is great, even though yes. you might have your own inner turmoil. I feel like that's your work. That's your yeah. job. Yeah. I feel like audiences are much more going to be much more receptive to a character like Susanna and Figo because they, they can relate it to exactly. something that they, they've seen seven seasons of, you know, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> totally, I agree. And so have you already sung Pamina or will this be your first Pamina when you come I to Chicago? I actually have sung Pamina, I think maybe twice already. Yes, in Chicago probably could be the third time doing that. And how many yeah. Ilias have you sung at this point? 
Um, two. The first time was my debut of the role was at the Met. Wow. How nerve wracking, right? Yeah. But um, was that I have the, to say, the I was really pro- lucky. Was that the、yeah. Panel production? Okay. Was a Panel production, and I was actually one. I did one performance, so it's it was a cover and one performance. Okay. Kind of contract that I had. So you are having a career that I I, I also sing, but nowhere like nearly as well as you do.、Oh. But you are having the type of career that I'm so envious of, and that you are working in these you know major institutions like the Met, and you also are collaborating with the more niche conductors like Emmanuel、mm-hmm. Hayim and、yes. Natalie Stutzman. So I'm just curious, what quality、mm-hmm. do you bring, or do you have that? Makes you attractive to both sides here, you know, because I feel like sometimes these early music historically informed conductors they're more attracted to the singers that can be more specific in their style that they like, and they、mm-hmm. shy away.、Mm-hmm. They shy away from artists who are too quote unquote operatic, you know. Right. Um. I think first of all, the repertoire, the pieces that I have done with them. Luckily, fits my voice. All fits my voice. It's all the repertoire that I wanted to do now, and I think though they fit my voice very well. But、uh, on the note of different styles, I would say it's it should be in your vocabulary, vocal vocabulary in training. Means you should be very flexible to do whatever the conductors want you to and. Um, so for me, I think I, I, you know, I think I love singing Baroque music, and it suits my voice very well. It's part of my repertoire. So、um, you just have to be able to、um, do what they ask you to do. Like Emmanuel,、uh, that was the first time working with her. She is very, very specific. She would literally write. All the ornaments down for you. Every single ornaments she would write them down. So that's I mean that's pretty easy, right? You don't have to、yeah. improvise or. But、um, Natalie, she is also a singer, right? She was、mm-hmm. a singer and now she conducts. So she knows singers very well. So that's very comfortable when you work with a conductor that knows the voice so well.、Mm-hmm. And that was I think I worked.、Uh, that was Messiah that I did with her. So that Messiah is also, I mean, a piece that I love doing, and I think it's perfect for my voice right now. So that, yeah. So those, I think, worked out perfectly fine. So after working with some of these more stylish conductors, do you ever、mm-hmm. take any of that what you learn from them to you know a conductor like Sir Andrew Davis or you know the conductor? Do you ever bring some of those stylish ideas and see if they fly, or you're like you know what I just got to be louder in this space, so I'm going to sing everything on the breath and everything、uh, to the end of the phrase, you know? I would say, yeah, that's a very good point.、Um, artistically, I think you know when you work with conductors like that, when they sp- like.、Um, Specialize in Baroque music; it really opens up your mind of what you could do in those repertoire, and I think that's the key point. You should, because sometimes when you listen to,、um, I don't know, when when you work with different conductors, 
you have different um, perspectives, right, of what is possible. So I think that the key is to combine all those and have them in your reservoir mm -hmm. of vocal vocabulary. So you can use them when you feel like it's necessary. But they will always tell you what they want, though. If you do something they didn't like, they will let you know. <laughs> That's the point. But you shouldn't uh, be intimidated from doing what's possible, I think. But also, um, when you're singing in houses like the mat and lyric, I wouldn't go like as quiet or as pianissimo as I would in European houses or in a concert, for sure. Because being heard is also very important in big houses like that. So I think that's a different technical approach and mental. Well, how does Santa Fe Opera fit in that, in your sort of like range of spaces that you sing in? Because I've never sung in an amphitheater, so I have no idea yeah. what is required and how much of yourself you hear back. But in Devieni Non Tardar, you floated some of those last phrases, like very, very quiet. And like I yes. said, the, the audience was holding their breath because they wanted to hear it, you know. How is it like to sing in Santa Fe? And what do you, how do you feel when you're on that stage? Oh, I have to tell you, it's magical. First of all, to be able to sing outdoor with like real breath, breathe on your face yeah. is amazing. <laughs> Not to mention, I mean, I couldn't really see much of the view, but you could from the audience, right? Stunning, I mean, yeah. The, the view is just stunning. And every time I was just waiting um, to enter the stage, I would just look out to inhale the beauty mm. of that view. It's so special. And moreover, the acoustics are surprisingly good, I have to say, for a outdoor theater. And um, maybe the set helped also because we had these walls behind us and everything. Mm -hmm. But I had no problem hearing myself. But I would say Santa Fe is maybe in the middle okay, okay of big theaters and um, European houses and concerts. Um, that allows me to take risks like that, to sing really the way I want it, these delicate moments, and to be heard at the same time. Yeah. And to, to like you said, to be in the moment and to just let, to be available to what comes in uh, while you're singing the aria. Because that can... is, yeah, and also, sorry. And also, I mean, the environment really helps too. You are outdoor. See, she's singing that in a garden, right? In mm -hmm. Giardino. It kind of feels like that. And it's a summer night. It's so nice. You know, it's pleasant to be outside. It's There's nothing like it, really. Okay, so we, we finished our commercial for Santa Fe Opera. <laughs> <laughs> Ying Feng, it has been such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for being on Opera Box Core. Thank you so much, Oliver. It's a pleasure. It's so much fun.
This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Weston's world this week. (laughs) According to the New York Post, an anonymous plaintiff is seeking $25 million in damages against the Metropolitan Opera and the estate of James Levine. The lawsuit alleges sexual and mental abuse by the conductor, which started when the plaintiff was just 15 and continued over the course of 25 years. According to the suit, Levine routinely connected the sexual abuse with promises of a career and that other Met employees knew there was an inappropriate relationship, an inappropriate relationship, but did nothing to intervene. Ricardo Muti has taken aim at the apparent greatest issue facing the musical world today, a lack of seriousness. None were spared. I don't even recognize my own profession. Conducting has often become a profession of convenience, and young people often get into conducting without long and serious study, said Muti in an interview with the Corriere della Sera. In other Muti news, the 80-year-old conductor has been awarded one of the highest Austrian honors, the Grand Decoration of Honor in Gold, which probably sounds better in German. In a program to attract youth to the theater, the Royal Opera House has announced that they will subsidize tickets for audience members between the ages of 16 and 25. The Young ROH program is available for the majority of the 21-22 season and includes an additional discount for recommending a friend. They just need to start advertising on podcasts with Casper mattresses and Simply Safe and they'll be all set. Ragnar Bolin has resigned from his post as choral director for the San Francisco Symphony due to COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Bolin has posted numerous articles questioning the vaccine on his Facebook page, including one that said the vaccine could lead to severe illness. Said Bolin, quote, I have, with a growing sense of alarm, observed the tide turn in this direction in regards to medical passports. I am sad to now see the SFS comply with these dictates and to protect deprive their employees of their basic rights to privacy, bodily autonomy, and informed consent. Okay, bye-bye. Don't make us bring back those red cards. Last week, Austria's Bergenz Festival canceled its new production of L'Italiana in Algeri after a member of the ensemble tested positive for COVID. Opera Australia has postponed the Brisbane premiere of its all-digital ring cycle for the second time due to the current border closure in the country. The production was initially rescheduled to premiere this October, but is currently postponed with no set date. Friend of the show, Opera Atelier is the recipient of an 83000 Canadian dollar Resilient Communities <laughs> Fund grant from the Government of Ontario to provide greater accessibility to the company's free online education program for Ontario youth. Said co-artistic director Marshall Pinkowski, the exposure to and the demystification of the performing arts is essential for young people for a myriad of developmental reasons. Self-expression, connection, creativity, empathy, and understanding. And also the ice-cold Mosins are on me, eh? The Canadian Opera Company, even more Canadian than the previous uh, entry, is going fully digital for their fall 2021 season, offering monthly streams, which include a gala concert with Russell Braun and friend of the show Tamara Wilson, a new production of Johnny Skiki, a semi-staged version of the Mozart Requiem, and the premiere of In Winter by Ian Cusson and Katarina Vermet. After retiring in 2012, bass baritone and all-around inspiration Thomas Kvastov has returned to singing, this time performing jazz. In a long-ranging interview with The Guardian, Kvastov discusses his career and highly emotional personal story. Said Kvastov, 
I never wanted my mother feeling guilty. Even if I said a hundred times that she should not, she still did. So I tried to show her that I had made the best out of my life and talent. In commemoration of the 20th anniversary of September 11th, the Metropolitan Opera will present a pre-season performance of the Verdi Requiem with soloists, friend of the show, and friends of the show, Eileen Perez and Matthew Polizzani, as well as non-friends of the show, for now, Elena Garancha and Eric Owens. This will be the first performance inside the Met since March 2020 and will be transmitted live on PBS. In trade news, Assistant General Manager Artistic and Executive Director of the Lindemann Young Artist Program at the Met, Diane Zola, has resigned. She will be replaced by Michael Heaston as AGM and Melissa Wagner as ED of the Lindemann Program. The resignation comes months after Zola was prominently featured in an article about systemic body shaming and professional bullying by middle-class artists. And on this day, August 23rd, in 1572, it was the St. Bartholomew's Eve Massacre, the event depicted in Meyerbeer's Les Huguenots. Rameau's opera Les Indes de Galante premiered in Paris on this day in 1735. In 1784 was the first performance of Giovanni Paisiello's opera Il Re Teodoro in Venezia. André Gretry's opera Denise Le Tourant, Maître d'école à Corinthe, premiered on this day in Paris in 1794. In 1802, it was the birth of baritone Eugène Massol in Lodev. He created many roles, including Cos in Les Huguenots, Rudolph in William Tell, Severo in Poliuto, and Abaïde in Don Sebastiao de Portugal. In 1814, it was the first performance of Gaspare Spontini's Pelage ou le Roi et le Pays in Paris. Ambroise Thomas' first opera, La Double Echelle, premiered in Paris on this day in 1837. In 1900, it was the birth of Austrian-American composer, writer, professor, conductor, and pianist Ernst Krzenik in Vienna. Victor Herbert's operetta Princess Pat premiered on this day in 1915 in Atlantic City. In 1929, it was the birth of American bass El Fego Beans Esparza in El Rancito, Texas. And finally, happy birthday to Celestina Casapietra, the soprano who was born on this day in Genoa in 1939. And that's your two-minute drill. Sabine Devier from a concert with Les Ambassadeurs in 2013 of the aria for Fanny in Rameau's Les Andes Galantes Viens, Imen. And Les Andes Galantes is probably the only opera we recognize from today's list of performances. <laughs> wow. Lots of randos Ooh. in there. But, you know, that's also opera history. It's a good and excuse to hear Matt just pronounce all of those <laughs> French names that you've never heard before. Yeah, it was a big day in Paris. No one, uh, no other <laughs> opera besides in Paris in August, I guess. It's what? true. I wonder what it is. about. I mean, Paris isn't particularly wonderful in August, so... Not really. Maybe trying to get, trying to get. Everyone the, was weekending in the country. Yeah. 
on the manicured lawn. Maybe that's why we don't know. We figured it out. That's why we don't know these operas because nobody was there to see them. <laughs> no one went to them, so they never did them <laughs> they again. Were on vacation. It was too Victor, hot. Um, Victor Herbert, he wrote Babes in Toyland. Is that right? That is him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ernst Krennic, man. Mm. Crazy name. Crazy guy. If you've ever seen Johnny Spielt Auf, which I never have, but it's on my bucket list to oh, direct. To see. Weston. Uh, to, to direct, to yeah. direct. Um, but uh, I mean, we just have to acknowledge two of the most amazing singing artists were born on this day because their names are so cool: Alfago Beans, Esparza, <laughs> and Celestina Casapietra. Wow, we don't name people like that anymore. Some people get called La Stupenda, and some people get called <laughs> Beans. Beans. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, let's uh, let's just rag on Ragnar here for a second. All right, man. What don't you <laughs> talk get? about beans? Listen, where's my where's the sharpie? Let me get the sharpie. Out. Hey, Ragnar, what don't you get about COVID, bro? It's real, okay? Oh my God, man. Uh, I don't I don't understand this. I literally it, don't understand this. I mean, it's just like this. This is anti-vax Mad Libs. Yeah, it means nothing. It's a bunch of buzzwords that that are being thrown around because it gives some people, I guess, a feeling that they have a veneer of respectability on this opinion that should not be controversial. Vaccine mandates are not new. Yeah, we have required them from for a very long time, hundreds of years. And it's it's worth you losing your job. It's worth you. Well, not not just like losing his job, but like we there's like we should have like a running list of all the companies that you have to be fully vaccinated to even uh, even attend. You've got like uh, the yeah, just this San Fran, Seattle, L.A. Opera, Pittsburgh Opera is a new one. Lyric Opera of Chicago recently updated it, and that's that's just a selection. And it's going to be more and more, you know, by the time I know time we're the recording starts. this on the day that the FDA approval for Pfizer came through. So the pace <laughs> right. is only going to pick up and the momentum yeah. is only going yeah. one way. Yeah. 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 Isn't, it, isn't the president of Brazil like an anti-vaxxer like oh, Bolsonaro? Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah. Okay. So maybe he can conduct in Brazil. So. Just in Brazil. Only if he's not, if he's serious. No unserious conductors, declares Ricardo Moody. I feel Moody. like every other story we have about Ricardo Moody just has this big get off my lawn, you kids energy to it. You mean, you mean Ricardo Moody? Oh, gosh. Waiting for oh that George, that was terrible, but we're leaving it in. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's 80, so yeah, he's getting into the cranky years. Also, also like... Uh, uh, what is this stereotype about if you want to like, you know, just sort of like, you know, skip classes and just like hang out and just get your conducting degree? Like what what school is he going to? <laughs> Who is he talking about? What Look, it's just it's old man syndrome, as Oliver says, right? Yeah. You can basically swap in any profession and it's baking bread has often become a profession of convenience and young people <laughs> often get into baking bread without long and soon. But I no. wonder who he's really pointing this at. Like, who does he not like? Is it like Dudamel or something? I think it's anyone who who tries to do like masterworks early in the career. Anyone he doesn't think is individual enough also he says a bunch of this is just excerpts from the clip that that we found in english translated into english and there's a whole section of him listing how he's not reactionary and all the other people who are not reactionaries while talking about how things have come too far and they used to be better in the old days but well he also misses like one of the basic tenets of the performing arts is that 
It's not a meritocracy, Ricardo, okay? Like, you don't have to study. The people who are successful aren't necessarily the best people who have studied Mm. the longest and the most serious. And a lot of time when people talk about this, what they mean is that you can't be as mean as you used to (laughs) without people getting upset at you. I really think you can't discount that factor of this, especially when talking about someone who is supposed to be in charge of uh, leading rehearsals and thinks that the standards have gone down. Uh, it reminds so, me of, the, the, of that clip, you can find it on YouTube, of uh, Toscanini yelling at the double basses in a in a rehearsal for, I forget what it's for, but he just like like yelling and throwing things, and it's just like the worst thing ever. And it's like, it's fine, we can just make music. We Music can be a light, fun thing sometimes, and I know I'm the last person to say that uh, with my, you know... Uh, <laughs> with, your, was... <laughs> with your Hans Werner Hensa hour that you propose. So the PR team at the Met, God bless them. They have so much to deal with right now. Um, A lawsuit, a supposed lawsuit. I mean, it's the New York Post, so we always have to question. A lawsuit Uh, probably was filed. We don't know anything more than that at this point in time. But But I mean, it's it's an old story at this point. But uh, yeah, here is a a new lawsuit. And then the um, Diane Zola Mm. retirement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well that, that one's kind of i don't know no, but and then, and then so like okay they're they're thinking like what are we gonna do to like we gotta put a story out there to like remind people that we do good work so free concert it's the <laughs> september 11th anniversary and here's some good singers. very, very light-hearted <laughs> sort of thing yeah. i mean the the diane zola thing I, I i we have no evidence to suggest that our good friend zach was uh, a factor instrumental in <laughs> Uh, it has been a while and, you know, it's it's one of those things that that she's she's such a background figure to most audiences. You know, I feel like it's sometimes it's, it's a little bit easier to speak out against, you know, bullying and, uh, you know, body shaming or whatever else uh, when it's a very prominent figure on stage. You know, you're you're Placido's Domingo or your James's Levine. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a little harder when they're, you know, you really only ever interact with them if you're a singer. And the fact that it's been such a long time since the Zach article went uh, public, I don't know if this is actually a result of Zach, but I do hope that anyone who might be hiring her for these new artistic opportunities, as the Met puts it, um, is taking his article into account before they and, sign a contract. And the, and the reaction to it. Right. That this is something that a lot of people care about. Yeah. And we are not going to just sit there quietly because it it is a real problem that needs to be confronted and just, you know, shuffling the pieces around on the board and leaving them all there is not going to solve that problem. I mean, especially without any kind of like apology. We have a lot Mm -hmm. of singer friends. So maybe we're in like a little bit of a echo chamber, but I also have friends who are administrators uh, and work in other areas of opera. And I didn't see anybody coming to her defense. All the things that I saw were people saying, yep, that's been going on. Yeah. And and again, this is this is a resignation, not a retirement. It doesn't sound right. Like well, she's, she's going to pursue other opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> other opportunities, exactly. air quotes, scare quotes. I will say that that I think this program is in really good hands with Michael Heaston. This is a guy who has really risen up the ranks. He was at Glimmer Glass. He then went over to the Met, and now he's obviously been promoted to the AGM slot. I. I I have like such confidence in this program now under the direction of Michael Heaston, and I, I hope I'm proved uh, correct. 
So I saw the Opera Atelier um, Chicago version of Making an Opera, and um, it was great. And I was actually worried because like there was a lot of children in the audience. I was worried that, oh, gosh, this is going to be it was like French Baroque. It was Charpentier's Actaeon, you know, I was like, this is going to be a tough sell. And they loved it. Uh, Opera Atelier and Marshall especially is so smart and so he understands what audiences need and he knows how to present stuff. He loves to be in front of the audience. He loves to talk and he loves to like, you know, talk about the magic of opera. And he really did pull like the curtain back and let people see how it's all done, like with lighting tricks and scrims and talking about dancing and singing and what, you know, affects are like, you know, very, very kind of complicated stuff that I think even adults understand. He was able to explain it. And uh, yeah, and it worked. And like, it was, our I mean, I don't want to talk about my former employer, but it was the most popular program we offered for our children's series that year. Mm-hmm. And everybody kept asking, how come all the programs that you're doing this year are not like that one where somebody gets up and explains what's going on, you know, and, you know, tells people what, how, to, how art is made. I think people need that. And we don't have enough right. arts education. And I think people actually enjoy, you know, breaking it down to its components and having it spelled out a little bit. We're no longer in an intellectual, you know, age where everybody has been to the opera and everybody's been to the symphony. You and know? no one's serious about conducting anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know who see. is serious about having a good time, however he can, though, is Tomas Kvostov. <laughs> yes. And everyone should read that article, that interview with him in The Guardian, because it is just so, it's inspiring. I mean, I don't want to be twee, but... Uh, this is a man who was born with severe birth defects, has the voice of an angel, has trained so hard, and just has such dignity in the way he conducts himself and the way he talks about his own life and his own story. It's very... Um, he he's just a really impressive person, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I I especially love the anecdote that he shares at the end of this about how you know people asked him to sing Rigoletto, people asked him, and he he said, "No, I only play kings." On stage. <laughs> so he'll play Amfortas, but not Alberich. Amazing. Love that. Let me just go back north of the border for one second. So COC is announced going fully digital, at least for the fall portion of, of 21-22. These other opera companies in the U.S. doubling down on vaccinated audience members with masks. Like, why the difference here, right? Why has COC decided to go one route and these American companies ostensibly going the other well coc has qualified it as their fall season so who knows what they're planning uh but i think it's smart to be cautious because i think i'm really nervous because like some of my own very meager contracts have been coming back and i'm thinking okay well i'm gonna put this in my calendar and we'll we'll um, see (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's it's just one of those things I feel like maybe a month and a half ago, two months ago, there was a lot more optimism. And then, of course, you know, with cases rising and, you know, I I feels like we're really hitting this wall of people who just will not get the vaccine. You know, it, it might still be a little while yet before we can comfortably say for sure, oh, yeah, this live show will happen. We will see. We will see. All right. Let us wrap this show up. Good call. Bad Call on Opera Box Score. Good Call, Bad Call, wrapping up your Opera Box Score for the week. Oliver Camacho. 
Our friends of the show at Opera Theater of St. Louis will be streaming performances from their 2021 festival season throughout the month of September. Um, Our friend Andrew Jorgensen, the GD of OTSL, said, Our outdoor festival was a fantastic success, but we could only accommodate 25% of our usual capacity. We cannot wait to share our season with the hundreds of supporters who were unable to attend. Mm. I'm very glad. I think uh, Highway 51... Is part was part of their season, which had Will Lieberman in it. So I, I did want to see that and go out to that specifically to see that show. So I'm so glad I'll be able to catch that in September. Matt Cummings. Uh, I was listening as I prepped for the show today to the new album of Ipuritani that dropped last week with <laughs> friend of the show Larry Brownlee and mm. uh, Sprano Sarah Coburn. Y'all, it's good. Like, I don't think there is a definitive recording of Puritani, and this still might not be one, but, like, he especially is rock solid all the way up to that F. It's great. Weston Williams in for Ashley Hardgrave. What do you got? Good call? Bad call? I mean, I'm just still just, like, absolutely, completely invested in your candy stripe suit, George. I mentioned it at the beginning, but, like, it's it's so white with the red stripes. It, it reminds me of Christmas. I, I I keep expecting you to like put put on a top hat and the snow comes down and you transform into a into a real snowman and you go around and give little little toys to all the children. Uh, I think I think I'm following you here. Um, <laughs> I got I got a good call. You know I don't watch a lot of TV. This is tangential to opera. So so follow me here. Uh, HBO Max. There's a show out called. Beforeigners. Anyone watching Beforeigners on HBO Max? Mm. It's an incredible show. The opening scene takes place at the Opera House in Oslo, Norway. How about that? That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at opera box score help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts email us your hot takes at opera box score gmail.com we do read them all subscribe to the podcast stitcher just favorite the show on apple podcasts the views and opinions expressed on opera box score are solely those of the show's creative team any rebroadcast reproduction or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of opera box scores blue 32 blue 32 hot hot our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editor, Weston Williams, for your co-host, Matt Cummings and George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about operas, those preseason NFL games wear on. Oh, God. We're back with an all-new show Wednesday, September 15th. We kick off season seven of the OBS. We go inside the huddle with soprano Aaron Morley. We give you more opera headlines. More hot takes, more what you want when you want it. Join us 